Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox, and today, Dr. Coffey, Thomas Merritt at Laurentian University in Sudbury is back to take a look at new data on the health benefits of coffee. Dr. Chris Kiefer of Canadians for Nuclear Energy tells us why the Canadian government recently rejected their petition for Canada to join the European Union and others in incorporating nuclear into our green bonds. Food Mesh Vancouver CEO Jessica Regan has some great ideas for reducing food waste and food insecurity. And 5440 co-founder Neil Osborne looks back at 40 years in the biz from the smiling Buddha to next weekend's celebration at the Commodore. So let's get started. Uh, here's a, uh, the first line from a story we saw the other day that said, well, we got to pick up the phone and call Dr. Coffee. Here we go. It turns out that drinking a few cups of coffee each day may actually do more than just give you a jolt at work. It might even help you live longer. This was a report on CBS News uh, based on a study published in the European Journal of Preventative Cardiology. And this is talking about the benefits of coffee. Always a pleasure to welcome our Dr. Coffee, Dr. Thomas Merritt from the School of Natural Sciences at my old school, Laurentian University in Sudbury, Ontario, to talk more about caffeine and all that stuff. Dr. Coffee, Thomas, good morning, sir. Welcome back. Good morning, Sterling. It's wonderful to be here. Can, can I counter your, <clears throat> your line with a line from the end of that article? Sure. <clears throat> Excuse me, I've got a frog in my throat. So it starts with you know the the uh, the positive headline, right. and then they quote the author of that study in the, the third to last paragraph, and it says our findings indicate that coffee drinking modest amounts of coffee should not be discouraged, and <clears throat> I think that contrast is a really wonderful contrast between the people who write the headlines, right, right, exactly, and the people who actually do the science. You know, we've we've talked about this before. Coffee's great. I, I've got a cup of coffee in my hand right right now, and so it's do we three as well. Mm-hmm. There you go. It's not even my first cup of coffee of the day. Uh, I I do completely buy into the point that that this article makes over and over. Modest amounts of coffee. You know, two or three cups of coffee. That's that's a really lovely way to to think about your day. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the the study shows that there are these differences in in lifespan that are associated with coffee. Um, it's not telling you. You know, one of the <clears throat> one of the articles that we chatted about before, the author literally came out and said, "I'm not going to tell people to, to go drink coffee, but if you're drinking coffee, I'm not going to tell you it's bad for you." Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and, and coffee, of course, has had this very colorful history in recent years, Thomas, about uh, it has had its good moments and its bad moments. Now, as it turns out, uh, the headline uh, reflects uh, uh, the current m- mood or mode regarding coffee. It is considered largely now by most to be okay or even good for you. But you will remember vividly, I'm sure, more than a few occasions when coffee got a real bad rap worldwide. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and, and I think, it, you know, compl- coffee is a complicated beverage. That's one of the reasons that, that we drink it. Um, but I think the punchline that seems to come out over and over again is it's really not too bad for you. Mm-hmm. Um, what, one of the really great things about this study, and, and this point has, has popped up before, whatever is going on with coffee, it's not just caffeine. Um, and it, it's, that's a really important point to, to think about. Coffee is a complex beverage. Mm. There are literally thousands of, of molecules in the cup of coffee that I'm sipping. Um, and, and potentially hundreds of those are having an impact on our biology. Caffeine is the one that we think of <clears throat> because literally that is 
the reason that we drink coffee, right? It, it's the, there are lots of really tasty beverages out there. There are not many of them that help you wake up. Uh, tea and coffee are the most popular beverages in the world because of caffeine yeah. and that wake up that comes with, with drinking both of those. Whatever is going on with coffee and health, it's likely that it's caffeine and other things. Um, there are these molecules called cholinergic acids um, that have received a lot of interest. And, and there may be some, some real health effects of these kind of molecules and other things that we call antioxidants. I was just going to say antioxidants. That's right. Now that, you, you, you pointed that out in the past, uh, Thomas, about uh, the, the antioxidant ca- capacity uh, that coffee has. What does that mean, antioxidants, and how, where is it in coffee? Yeah, it's a really great question. And so the part of the answer is we're not entirely sure. It may be the cholinergic acids. It may be other molecules in, in the coffee. Basically, antioxidants are natural molecules that help uh, sort of scrub clean the, the cells, clean your body. Okay. Uh, and they, that's, that's completely legitimate. I mean, they, we, we know that antioxidants are a thing. Your, your body actually produces them. Uh, you can boost levels through diet. It may be that some of the, these associations with coffee are being driven by these antioxidants. The, the punchline, though, is that there are better ways to get antioxidants. If, if you are concerned about antioxidants in your diet, ha- have a cup of blueberries. Oh. Um, they're amazing for antioxidants. Um, if you're concerned about your cup of coffee, you probably don't have to be. It's not hurting you, but it's not the best way to, to get a healthy diet. It's just not part of, of an unhealthy diet. Interesting. Now, you and I have talked about decaffeinated coffee, which you tend to drink a lot more than I do. I don't touch the stuff. But, <laughs> um, but in terms of antioxidants and those other compounds and potential benefits contained therein, if you drink decaffeinated coffee, Dr. Coffee, are any of those other benefits diminished because there's no caffeine? They're not diminished because there's no caffeine. They may be changed because decaffeination does absolutely change coffee. Uh, the way that we make decaffeinated coffee is better now than it, than it ever has been. Uh, and so there are fewer changes out there. We can't say that, that the, the antioxidants won't be changed, but they'll be changed less. One of the, study, one of the, the findings of the study that, that you were uh, referring to, the, the associations that they find they find in caffeinated coffee and decaffeinated coffee. Okay. So that health benefit potential uh, is not driven by, by the caffeine. Um, and it, it actually reminded me of a study that I read a few years ago, and I went and looked up again this morning. Um, and they were comp- in that study, they were comparing uh, espresso and filtered coffee. So whether the coffee actually went through a paper filter, mm-hmm. and really strikingly, they found differences. So... Whatever is going on with coffee, those paper filters can actually take some of it out. And so if there is a health benefit of coffee, there may be a greater benefit to drinking coffee like espresso uh, that doesn't get filtered versus coffee that, that runs through a paper filter. Uh, so I, I literally will tell you I'm holding a, a cup of espresso in my hand now, but I had a filtered coffee this morning. So I'm, I'm hedging my bets. Ah, okay. Here's another quote from that CBS story we started off the conversation with. Quote, one 2018 study found that over a 10-year period, coffee drinkers were l- roughly 10 to 15% less likely to die than those who didn't drink coffee. Another published last year found that drinking three to four cups of coffee, regardless of whether it's caffeinated, reduces the risk of developing and dying from chronic liver disease. More and more, as time goes on, Dr. Merritt, uh, 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 we find more and more benefits and m- we're more able to define them more clearly. This is all good, isn't it? It's not bad. 
And, and I, I want to contrast those two studies that, that, that you just mentioned. Uh, the first one clearly says there's an association, and the second one says there's a cause. Mm-hmm. And I, I will tell you that the scientists didn't say there was a cause. The scientists said there was an association. And people who drink coffee do other things. Um, and people who study people who do things try to tease this out. Um, so early on, there were a lot of confounding studies, and a lot of the negative press that coffee got was because coffee drinkers tended to be smokers. And the negative effects of coffee, we, we now know we're te- when we sort of tease those two apart, were actually negative effects of smoking, not negative effects of coffee. Right, okay. So, you know, when, when we do these kind of studies, <clears throat> we very clearly factor out things like um, excessive alcohol use, smoking, uh, you know, div- <laughs> complicated diets, diabetes, that kind of stuff. Um, but we're not perfect. And, and the studies do a very good job of teasing things apart, but they can't always pull everything out. So there may be health benefits of coffee. It may be that there's other things that coffee drinkers do that also reduce the incidence of things like colon cancer is one of the, one of the uh, diseases that pops up fairly regularly, that coffee drinking seems to be associated with a lower risk of colon cancer. Interesting. Uh, but colon cancer is, itself is super complicated, and, and different people have very different susceptibility to that cancer as they do to every cancer. But as you point out, Thomas, moderation is the key to all of this. I mean, as the old cliche goes, too much of even a really good thing is still too much. And oh, uh, uh, so, again, uh, coffee is, is not the inexpensive cure-all <laughs> that, that you could drink 12 cups of before lunch and another 12 before supper and really be a healthy individual. Chances are it's a bit over the top, right? Yeah, I would say that's over the top. You know, I have a couple of cups of coffee in the morning, maybe that cup of coffee after lunch. Uh, but moderation is definitely the name of the game. All right. Uh, Dr. Thomas Merritt, always a pleasure, sir. We do appreciate your, your input into our show, and it's always fun to have you back. We look forward to our next opportunity already. Great to chat with you, Sterling. Take care. The uh, president of South Korea is coming to our country next week. He's very pro-nuclear. And South Korea just followed the European Union's lead by including nuclear in their green bonds. Here in this country, Canadians for Nuclear Energy petitioned the government of Canada through the House of Commons to include nuclear within our green bond framework. That petition was rejected. Here to talk about it is the president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy. Always a pleasure to say good morning and welcome back to Dr. Chris Kiefer in Toronto. Chris, good morning. Hi, Sterling. It's, uh, it's wonderful to be back. Thank you for the warm welcome. Well, it's good to have you with us again, Chris. Now, how recent was this uh, whole process of submission, rejection, etc.? It sounds quite current. Yeah, I mean, the petition was submitted actually back in April. Um, the House of Commons has a very interesting mechanism for Canadians to have their voices heard. If you can get a MP to sponsor your petition, you can get a certain number of signatures. Uh, that petition is read on the floor of the House of Commons, and the government is mandated to write a written response within a given time period. Okay. So we just got the response to our petition. Now, this petition, as you mentioned, it was in favor of putting nuclear into our green bond framework. Nuclear is currently classified essentially as a sin stock uh, within that framework. It's excluded alongside gambling, tobacco, firearms, you know, the typical sin stocks. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we found that to be unacceptable. You know, we're in the midst of, you know, a climate crisis. We're in the midst of a major economic downturn. And nuclear answers a lot of those questions in a, in a proven manner. Doctor- um, I know you're out, in, you're out in B.C., but right here in Ontario, 
uh, nuclear provided 90% of the energy we needed to phase out coal, for example, off our grid. Exactly. And of course, Ontario, the only jurisdiction in the country that I'm aware of that is currently using nuclear on a daily basis in terms of regular power supply. Chris, can you take a quick second and remind us what the green bond stuff is about in the first place? Sure. I mean, so look at any large piece of infrastructure in this country. It was funded by low interest capital. You know, it costs a lot of money to build a bridge, to to dig a tunnel, to build a huge hydro dam. And the way that we finance those things is generally through government backed bonds. Okay. You know, most most governments, particularly, you know, the Canadian government is fairly well regarded in terms of, you know, its ability to pay back its its uh, debts and its loans. Um, and so the government will back certain things. And now with this green bond, the government's recognizing we have major challenges uh, with climate change. We just saw Hurricane Fiona, you know, destroy the East Coast. You had your heat dome out west last year. There's clearly a need to act on this rapidly. Um, and so it's a wonderful idea to have mechanisms to steer uh, that low cost capital towards the projects that are going to have the biggest bang for their buck. Right. Um, and nuclear really is it. Um, you know, a lot of Canadians aren't aware. Um, you know, we are we're, we're kind of freeloading on all the hydroelectricity that we've built sure. again with bonds over the last few decades. Um, but we're running out of spots to put new hydro and things like the site C dam are controversial. To say the least. Valleys in yes. Columbia. So, Chris, let's talk then a little bit about the the green bond uh, business, because as, as I mentioned at the beginning, the Korean South Korean president is coming to town, so to speak. His country uh, has followed the European Union. This is not one. This is the European Union, all of whom have agreed to include nuclear in their green bonds. So your response, the rejection of your petition for Canada to do the same, the rejection letters were written by Jonathan Wilkinson of Vancouver, the Ministry of Natural Resources, and the Deputy Prime Minister, uh, Christian Freeland. What were their combined reasons for saying flat out no to nuclear as a, as a component of Canadian green bonds? Well, you know, unfortunately, uh, both of these ministers are living in the past. And I'll be the first to say that nuclear has traditionally been excluded from these green finance mechanisms. And that has a lot to do with some outdated prejudices against the technology. It has to do with, you know, who these bankers are and who they're being advised by, which is generally by large environmental NGOs, who unfortunately are horribly misguided on this. Um, But as you mentioned, um, countries are coming out of the woodwork now to include it in their taxonomy. Um, You know, presently, for instance, the country of Belgium um, does not include nuclear in their taxonomy. That was what uh, Christia Freeland referenced. Belgium also, in the midst of the greatest energy crisis in Europe since OPEC um, in the 1970s, you know, we all know what happened then. They just shut down one of their nuclear reactors that provides 10 percent of the electricity on their grid. And not for any kind of safety reason or because the plant's too old, just because of these old green ideological commitments. You know, they don't even have the gas to replace that plant. So why They're would... forecasting blackouts. So we shouldn't be following the example of, of countries like Belgium or Germany, for instance. South Korea has an amazing track record of building nuclear plants on budget and on time, cost competitive with coal. Um, so we should be following the example of, you know, cutting edge developments in green finance, not making excuses and staying at the back of the pack. Well, Chris, I'm curious about back to Belgium, if you don't mind for a second. Here's a country that has no option, no no alternative to go to. And yet they turn off the nuclear tap, to, which represents roughly 10 percent of their energy consumption. That's basically shooting yourself in the foot uh, with no other option to go to. The Germans are in exactly the same boat, but they're now back to burning 
burning coal. So how, for the greenies in Germany, who actually convinced the government to go non-nuclear, the net result of which is burning coal, how can that be uh, registered as any kind of positive outcome? I'll I'll let you in on a dirty secret, Sterling, and that is that Germany never moved away from burning coal. They invested over $500 billion in a wind and solar-driven energy transition. Uh, You know, whatever their intentions were, that's wonderful. But before the Russian invasion, in 2021, coal was the number one source of electricity on the German grid, despite Hmm. all of that spending. In Ontario, we we got coal off the grid. We made it illegal to burn coal in this province. We were only able to do that because of nuclear energy. You know, so, you know, had the Germans followed the Ontario example, had they spent that money instead on nuclear, they would have a completely decarbonized electricity grid and it'd be well on their way to electrifying their whole transportation sector. So, you know, this is a real moment where we we can look at the experimental evidence, you know, countries and provinces that went all in on nuclear and got excellent results in terms of their emissions, their air quality, their economics. And we can look at countries like Germany, which is, you know, it's it's tragic. I mean, it's, it's really sad seeing what's going on in that country. But it's literally taken the sabotage and explosion of their two big gas pipelines from Russia to bring them to their senses to keep their last uh, two of their three remaining nuclear plants online. Yeah, That's how so, stubborn they are. Yeah, I was just going to mention that, the fact that they, they had planned to just to completely shut down. And because of the current energy crisis pre- precipitated by Russia, Germany can't completely shut down its nuclear, despite willing to, uh, to satisfy the green component in their political lives. Uh, they've, they've now, uh, as you say, they're going to maintain two of the three because they need to. Sterling, I have some, uh, to switch the topic slightly, I have some very exciting breaking news for you. I'm not sure if you've been following it out in British Columbia, but right here in Ontario, um, one of our big nuclear plants that provides 15% of our province's electricity, scheduled to be shut in 2025, um, has been life extended, just announced on Thursday, and plans for refurbishment are underway, which will keep that plant operating another 30 years. And This which- has been endorsed, um, you know, this was pushed by my organization. We really put out the template for it with our report. We just had an endorsement yesterday from Asthma Canada praising nuclear energy as something that has drastically improved air quality in Ontario. When we burned coal, we had 54 smog days a year. Asthmatic children basically didn't leave the house for the whole summer. Yeah. Um, at the end of our coal phase, we had no smog days. Um, our campaign also endorsed by someone called the godfather of climate science, um, NASA scientist James E. Edward Hansen. Um, so, you know, we're feeling really great here that there is a big turnaround. We're seeing a turnaround of nuclear around the world right here in Ontario. Um, you know, in the UK, they're planning on building eight new large reactors. France, 14. South Korea is planning on doing a big build out. Japan, site of the Fukushima accident, yes. is turning the reactors back on finally. Um, so, a huge turnaround happening. I know Canadians have some concerns, um, and I really encourage them to, you know, come check out our website, c4ne.ca, um, to have some of those concerns answered, at least to, you know, get a second opinion on some of the, the some of the beliefs they may have at present. Yeah, almost out of time here, Dr. Kiefer, but I'm glad you brought up the word and used it, Fukushima. That was the reason that Merkel and the German government used the excuse, at least, to, to, to lean to an anti-nuclear posture and to take them in the direction of closing down their plants. Japan, the site of the new, of the Fukushima nuclear accident that uh, the world paid a lot of attention to, uh, Japan is coming back to nuclear. That can't have been an easy decision. 
Well, you know, it's interesting, Sterling. We, we had to correct the CBC News uh, earlier this year on the anniversary of the Fukushima accident because they said, you know, the Fukushima nuclear accident where 20,000 people died. No, 20,000 people died because of the earthquake and tsunami and the devastation of that country. Right. Right. The third largest earthquake ever recorded in human history. There's not been a single death associated with radiation release from that nuclear plant. And that comes from the highest scientific bodies of the United Nations. Right. So that that, if anything, you know, in a strange way, almost proves the safety case of nuclear energy. We had three large reactors melt down. Um, they have excellent containment. There was a radiation release, but it was at such a low level that it didn't actually cause any deaths from radiation to the surrounding populace. So, again, a very interesting factoid there. 20,000 people died not because of the nuclear accident, because of the earthquake. But there's this tendency again, right, um, unexamined uh, facts, right? So, again, I, I'd really encourage people to come check out our website and to educate themselves because there is a big change happening. This is happening because of climate change, because of concerns around energy security. And nuclear really ticks all of the boxes for the kind of energy that we need to go forward to electrify everything and, and take appropriate action on climate change. Indeed. Dr. Keeper, always a pleasure, sir. Thank you very much. And let me just remind our listeners that that website that Chris is talking about is C, the number four, N-E, C, for ne.ca or you can do the long form and go canfornuclearenergy.org either way check out the website it's a wealth of good information dr keeper we'll talk again sir thanks for this chris take care sterling thanks for having me back In the last few days here in Vancouver, we've been hosting the Zero Waste Conference downtown. And, of course, one of the major issues dealt with at conferences like this is food waste. And one of the problems that contributes to food waste is that many people throw away food that's still edible. Here in Vancouver, there are several startups that are working on solutions to this, one of which is Food Mesh. Its founder and CEO, Jessica Regan, uh, is with us now to talk about Food Mesh, a Vancouver business that's been around around for a few years to help manage unsold food, to reduce waste, and to feed more people. Jessica Regan, good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's good to have you with us, Jessica. For this this uh, net zero, I'm sorry, zero waste conference that we've talked about here uh, uh, took place in just the last couple of days, uh, talking about food waste, among other issues. But you've been on this file for a quite, quite a long time. You got your company started back in 2016. What got you started in the first place, Jessica? Yeah, indeed, indeed. It's very much a hot topic, but, you know, several years ago, it was very difficult to get it on the radar, and, um, and it was a lot of advocacy. And, and ultimately, what made us start was just uh, just seeing pictures of container loads of edible food going to compost. Uh, and unfortunately, because of the stickers on the avocados, and uh, that, that food was actually even rejected at the compost. So we've got quite a bit of work to do to make sure that our edible food doesn't end up in landfills. You know, food is not waste. Waste just happens when there's no end user. So so we started, uh, that was the genesis of Food Mesh. And the idea is that we don't so much have a food shortage problem. We have a, a disconnection problem when you can't sell that food. So we built up this, this platform to connect uh, unsold food to new markets uh, to try and sell it for cost recovery or donate it 
And if it isn't inedible, then finding other means other than landfills, such as farmers or, you know, other industrial purposes. So we call it MESH because it's a big ecosystem and a big community. Uh, and we just are ultimately just matchmaking and helping that food find a better home. Indeed, the website, I'm on it right now, Jessica. It's great stuff too. Foodmesh.ca, friends. Uh, and you talk about, send us a message and a member of the team will get back to you soon. You want people with food supplies of any description to connect with you and talk to you about what to do with their leftovers, right? You got it. You got it. We, we, we deal uh, primarily with um, manufacturers and retailers, so large-scale commercial volume, mm-hmm. uh, because we find that that's a, a significant amount of the, the portion of food. So for those who don't know, over half the food we grow in Canada is, is lost or wasted along the supply chain. A uh, significant amount of that happens at the commercial level. So that's where we really focus. Uh, we've also partnered with Metro Vancouver. So as probably many of you know, Metro Vancouver introduced Organics Ban in 2015. They were one of the first regions in the, in the country to do that. Uh, and so they've, they've hired us to help build up this network, the advocacy events. And so if anybody does have surplus food, um, a small business, restaurant, uh, they can give us a call. Uh, consider it like a hotline. And if we can't help you through our marketplace or our managed program, there's lots of other s- solution providers that we will help connect you with. Um, Metro Vancouver is absolutely um, vibrant with lots of different organizations and startups that want to use that food um, for other purposes. So it's our job to help connect. Absolutely. And you've got some rather staggering numbers on your website too, Jessica. Mm-hmm. You talk, you say, for example, the problem, and you identify the problem with graphics and everything. It's nicely done. 58% of all food produced in Canada is never consumed, Jessica. That's an amazing number. Yeah, I mean, it's especially when you see uh, rising food prices and food insecurity. I mean, food insecurity is one in one in seven people in Canada are considered food insecure, which mm-hmm. means the lack of predictable access to safe and nutritious food. So we're wasting such significant amounts of food. Uh, and we're no, and we have like hundreds of thousands of data points to know that this food is still edible. It's it's quite an infuriating problem, and I think any human on a visceral level would agree. Like this, this needs to stop. This is avoidable. And you talk and you you identify the network, uh, the food mesh network that uh, you've you've compiled. You've got lots and lots of organizations of all sizes and descriptions, and and you connect all of these people. So who are upcyclers? What I'm looking at all of the, uh, the the possibilities of connections that you make, and one of the groups that you do connect with are upcyclers. What's that? So an upcycler is, is ultimately part of what we're calling the circular economy. So an upcycler would take the, the end product of somebody's like that would be waste and they use it as the input to the raw materials for their work. So, um, for example, somebody who's doing upcycling of jam or some sort of like the, the um, dr- dried goods. So Trendy, for example, is a startup in, in Vancouver. Uh, and what they do is they dehydrate the, 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 uh, the products that wouldn't be sold. And then they convert it into nutri- uh, nutrients for, you know, to go into different types of um, food products. So it's really about repurposing that food into a new product. Uh, and I think it's really exciting. And, and there's a whole, uh, whole bunch of new upcyclers that are happening. We need more, actually. We need a lot more. Interesting. I'm glad I asked you about them because I, 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 I've seen the term before, but I've never really sort of dived into it all. And, and, and it makes perfect sense when you look at it. Livestock farmers, for example, another of the many groups you identify as being part of the Food Mesh Network. So where do yeah. livestock farmers benefit from participating in the Food Mesh Network, Jessica? Yeah, you got it. So we have a grocery store program where we uh, build little micro networks around all of the grocery stores. So it goes to charities first for the donations. And then 
the food that the, the charities cannot eat because it's inedible or whatnot, we have a network of about 700 farmers um, across Western Canada that will take that food and feed their pigs and okay. their chickens. Uh, and so that's really great for them because now all of these animals are not just necessarily eating like dried grains. They're also eating fresh veggies, which also helps the farmers save costs as well as giving more nutritious food for, for their for their livestock. So and these hobby farmers. in the cases of, of farmers who benefit uh, by by turning some what would have been food waste into animal food, uh, mm-hmm. do they pay for this in some cases or is it donated? How's that uh, work out? Yeah, it's completely donated. So part of this legislation in place called the Donor Encouragement Act and the Feed Act. um, And um, it's really important that there's not a monetary exchange. Um, It's through the donation. So to be protected under this act, um, there is a non-monetary transaction. So it's basically they take the food and they record the data uh, so that the stores can start to see their impact and where their food is going. So part of, in addition to matchmaking um, the, this food and finding homes, we also have a software element to it where we're tracking a lot of this and getting really high fidelity data so people can really understand the problem of food waste, what's avoidable, where it's going, the nature of it, so that we can start to make um, changes in, in, in our systems. Mm-hmm. And we missed it by a couple of days officially, Jessica, but we're close enough. September 29th, which was Thursday, was the International Day of Awareness of Food exactly. Loss and Waste, and of course also the closing day of the zero waste conference here in Vancouver. What did you? What have you learned uh, as a result of the latest conference in Vancouver? In terms uh, uh, that you can apply on a daily basis at Food Mess. What what new info do you have uh, oh. in terms of uh, food loss and waste this year? Oh my gosh, it was such an extraordinary conference, um, and there was lots of innovators there. You know, I, I was moderating a couple of panels of uh, new uh, startups. There was one that's using insects for sustainable protein. Hmm. Uh, there's, you know, there was people uh, talk, really it's about the circular economy. Like waste is unacceptable. We need to start to. Um, I, I heard a stat that 60% of our landfills are going to be filled up in the next five years. We have a waste problem, and we have a disposability problem, and so we need to rethink waste and start to use it as input. So um, there was uh, over 500 people there. Lots of startups, big companies are trying to figure out how to get into the into the system. But you know, it's really about. Look, take a look, cold hard look at your waste, whether it's food or textiles or whatever it is, uh, and make some small changes. Try to buy seconds first. Go go to the first stop. Stop buying new stuff. We have way too much in circulation, and find other ways. Make just care about where your stuff goes. Stop throwing it out and find somewhere else that you can go to good use. Uh, and if we start to do that, we'll start to see some some meaningful change. I think. Do you think that here, last question to you, Jessica, and, and we're grateful that you're, you're with us this morning, particularly having participated as energetically as you, you did in the Zero Waste Conference. Uh, Vancouverites especially, uh, but British Columbians in general, are considered in Canada at least to be on the cutting edge in terms of awareness, group awareness of, of, of waste and, and recycling, particularly Ontario is just so far behind us on so many of those categories. Do you agree that at least Vancouverites are, are, are more inclined to be thinking in that direction than perhaps uh, other Canadians. Yeah, I mean, I think certainly on the West Coast, there's a, a higher degree of conscientiousness, um, perhaps. And, uh, you know, other provinces are starting to really, I mean, there was a lot of presence from other provinces at the conference. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's those are the first steps. But we've got a long way to go as Canadians. Uh, uh, Metro Vancouver is definitely leading the charge, I would say. And uh, regulations help. I mean, that helps 
you know, businesses are now forced to care. They, they can no longer, status quo is no longer okay, right? So we've got a long way to go. BC is definitely leading the charge, Metro Vancouver specifically. Um, but I'm quite encouraged to see the, the presence, the attendance and the interest um, from all Canadians that were present at the conference. Interesting stuff. According to their website, foodmesh.ca is all about wasting less, feeding more and saving money. So that's pretty laudable goals, Jessica Regan. Thanks ever so much for getting up early on a Saturday to do this with us. Important conversation to have. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to say good morning and welcome to 5440's Neil Osborne. Neil, good morning. Morning, Sterling. How are you? I'm fantastic, thanks. It's great of you to join us. Uh, the musical history behind 5440 goes right back to 1978. Neil, you and Brad went to school in Tawasson at South Delta High School. That's where this whole thing began. Yes, we uh, we thought we'd just try our luck as being a band. And uh, you know what? I've only ever had one job, and that's being the singer in 5440 since <laughs> 1979. So, uh, crazy. It, 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 is it true? I've been trying to find out some facts about you. And, of course, when you start looking for facts about bands and you look on the Internet, you never know what you're going to find. But one yes. of the things that I found was your first actual official gig as a band took place on the night John Lennon was killed. Is that true? That is absolutely true. So it was December, I think it was 8th. Uh, uh, 1980. Yeah. So it was uh, one. It was a Monday night, and it was one of those uh, places out in Coquitlam, you know, where it was a uh, open mic situation. Okay. So we thought, well, let's go out before we, you know, really launch ourselves. Let's try a few songs on our open night. So it was a very uh, powerful evening, to say the least. I think anyone that was around and a, and a teenager or older in, in on that day definitely remembers where they were and what they were doing. So we just felt like you know, we were we were sort of picking up a flag that maybe John had had to, had to let go. I, was, I must we talk about an emotionally charged evening, Neil. Holy cow! I mean, how do you top that one, huh? Yeah, no, it's a heck of a way to start. No kidding. Yeah. And and how long after that uh, that open mic debut uh, did you actually get into the studio and start recording and, and and figure out that this 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 has got some legs here? We might we might as well do something with this. Yeah, I mean, we we always enjoyed writing, and then uh, the extension of that would be recording, and, and we, and I think that's how we got a little advantage over maybe some of the other Vancouver bands. Is we we found a way to get into the studio immediately, and then beg, borrowed, steal from our relatives to make records, and then when they're in record stores, local record stores like Zulu and Quintessence, or you know, around Vancouver, right. uh, people started to take notice of us and offer us shows and halls and schools and things like that. And, you know, very DIY in those days. And if you were DIY, you, you stood ahead of the pack. Indeed. Do you recall, Neil, the first time you heard one of your songs on the radio? Uh, I don't recall the first time, but I remember when we were driving through uh, Toronto. It was our very first time in Toronto, which was, believe it or not, ni- not till 1986. Huh. Uh, Baby Ran, the song Baby Ran was number one on CFNY, and we we had the windows rolled down in the van, and we were screaming, and people were looking at us like we were idiots, but we were so happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's fun. I'm glad I asked you that, because when you go back in the history of, of bands, uh, especially uh, that have lasted as long as you have, it's it's quite a it's quite a trip back down memory lane in the first place to, to even recall that. But again, what a euphoric moment, Neil. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, there's been a few. There's been a few highlights in our career that we that are seem, seemingly unforgettable. And then there's once in a while, a fan will come up and remind us of a show or remind me of a show. And I'll have to sort of use the roll decks in the brain and go, oh, oh, yeah, 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 I remember that. And then, you know, so it's been great. I can't remember how many gigs we've done, thousands. So it's hard to remember them all. What was it like when you found out that uh, your song, I Go Blind, had been remade by Hootie and the Blowfish and was being a big deal hit in the USA? Yeah, that uh, that happened quite organically. Apparently, the uh, song was on the Friends soundtrack and, and Hootie, who were fans of our band, they were when they were in college, they used to come up. Up to Washington, D.C. is a little club called the 930 Club, not far from their school. And uh, they were in a cover band, and they said they did all our songs off our first two records. And, you know, they, they were just kids for us at the time. And then next thing you know, uh, they had released this song on the Friends soundtrack that wasn't supposed to be a single, but Boulder, Colorado, and then Denver, Colorado picked it up, and, and they got a lot of call-ins, like the old days. Mm-hmm. People just, I want to hear that song. I want to hear that song. And it just grew across the country. And uh, then we went down to Los Angeles to get an award for the, one of the top, th- the third most played song in the U.S. in 1996. So that was that was very special. Indeed. So when was the actual 40th anniversary? Because I understand that this big blowout at the Commodore next Friday and Saturday night is the official celebration of 40 years in the biz. But you actually click past that milestone, Neil, during the pandemic when, of course, you weren't allowed to celebrate. That's right. Kind of like it's kind of like the World Cup and some of these other events, like the Olympics. You know, there was we'll have the 2020 Olympics. Well, as soon as we can. Mm-hmm. So 2020 would have been our 40th anniversary as a band. So, uh, but we're uh, we're going to just prolong it here. You know, who wants to age? Exactly. Well, I'm looking. I'm trying to find a quote that was attributed to you. Wait a second. Here it is. Uh, this is a, a referring back to again the, what we just talked about the the fact that your first gig of any description was the night John Lennon was killed. So you it, quote. I used to say, if I'm still doing this when I'm 30, I'm going to shoot myself. And then I said, if I'm still doing this when I'm 40, someone please shoot me. Now, if I'm still doing this at age 50 and over, dot. Dot, dot. How you fill in that last part, Osborne? Amazing. Unbelievable. <laughs> I have to pinch myself. It's like I'm still rocking. But then you know what? We had a rule, Brad and I, were in high school. We had two, ob- well, we had many objectives. But one was we were going to open for the Rolling Stones, which we ended up doing in 2004. Wow. And and then we said, uh, when they hang them up, when, they, when the Rolling Stones retire, That'll be our 20-year warning, because we were pretty much 20 years. They started in 1960, believe it or not. So uh, when they retire, which they haven't done yet, I that's know. when we'll give our 20-year notice that we're retiring. <laughs> well, that's, uh, that, uh, that allows for a little, a little bit of runway left uh, in, the, in the life of 5440. I wanted to ask you quickly here, Neil, before I have to let you go, about a family curse, because you've, uh, you've sort of diversified your talent. You've, you've gotten together with your daughter, Kendall, and this is not new. This is something that's been going on for a couple of years. Tell us about this diversion that you've got yourself involved in. Yeah, Candle was stranded living with her, my daughter. Uh, she's an artist in her own right. She was stranded during the pandemic, sort of with us in Vancouver. And then we found this uh, thing called the green screen, and we started to make our own DIY videos. And we uh, started a band, kind of a Texas blues outlaw band. Uh, that's kind of the inspiration behind it. 
And we're actually opening for 5440 this coming weekend. So okay. We're, we're pretty excited. Yeah. Have you played oh. uh, Have you played gigs together uh, live again? Because this all started recently during the pandemic. Is this your first uh, step into the silver spotlight as a duo? Uh, we've played a garage. We've played in a living room. We've played a couple <laughs> of sketchy nightclubs. <laughs> we did a little tour of Ontario that was uh, anywhere and any, everywhere. We even played a Shakespeare theater. Um, so this will be the first sort of big time, big in the big time at the Commodore. Absolutely. And finally, the Commodore home away from mm-hmm. home after all these years. I know it started out of the smiling Buddha, but you played the Commodore almost as many times as, as, as the, the real, uh, lifers down there. Haven't you? Uh, we hold the record for sure by, by quite a number. I don't know how many it is, but I think we're close to 70 plays. There. Yeah. And that was another dream when we started out of high school. It's like our dream is to, to one day play, play the Commodore. So it's so fantastic that we get to live our dream every year. <laughs> no kidding. And I've seen you at the Commodore more than a few times. And what a great, comfortable venue from the stage and down on the floor. Everybody likes being there, and it shows. It's great fun. Yeah, we have a big family. I mean, everybody that comes to our shows, it's uh, it's like a big picnic of the 5440 family. It's, it's so fun. Time's up, Mr. Osborne. Can people still get tickets for either Friday or Saturday night coming up next weekend at the Commodore? Or are you already sold out? I think we're getting close, but I do believe there are tickets still available. So, All yeah. right. Well, congratulations. It's It's been quite a ride and far from over. And we do appreciate your doing this with us this morning. Thanks a lot, Neil. Sterling, my pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live, 6 to 9, weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week.